foundational subject of inspiration. And we're going to look at it in this particular way by asking the question, when were the books of the Bible written? In this first class, um, the Old Testament, and in the second class with Brother Matthew, the New Testament. And the reason why we're looking at it this way is that there are two answers to that question. Uh, Brother Ron alluded to these in his class last night. And the two answers are these. First of all, that the books were written by contemporary prophets at the time of the historical events which the books record. And the second view is that these books were written by unknown scribes long after, in some cases hundreds of years after, the events which they record. And that the names of people who are associated with the books had nothing to do with them. Those people had nothing to do with them at all. And what we're going to see this morning is that biblically, the first answer is correct. And biblically, the second answer is wrong. Because if we ask the supplementary question, who wrote these books? The Bible answer is that God wrote them. So let's start with the foundation statement of the Birmingham Amended Statement of Faith. Brother Ron mentioned the Statement of Faith two or three times in his class last night. And this is the Christadelphian position on inspiration. This statement, this foundational statement, was added in the 1880s because there were people around then in the community who were questioning whether all of the Bible was the work of inspiration. And our stated belief is that the Bible is the only source of knowledge we have concerning God and his purposes. And that the books of the Bible defined there as the scriptures of Moses, the prophets and the apostles were wholly given by inspiration of God in the writers and are consequently without error. And this is what Christadelphians have believed and proclaimed for 150 years. Uh, and it does pose the question, if you don't believe this, and if you don't believe the other things in the statement of faith, such as that Adam was the first man, why do you call yourself a Christadelphian? Because this is what we as a community believe. Now, the other view is the current academic consensus view of the matter, the view of the scholars. It's the thinking of men, it's humanistic, and we need to be A, aware of it, and B, beware of it. You don't have to look far to find it. All you've got to do is Google something like dating the Bible, and you will find that the current scholarly consensus is that the books of the Old Testament were written during five distinct periods of historical time. Now, I'm going to run through these quickly before we get to open our Bibles and see what the scriptures say, just so that we are all aware what is out there and what is creeping into our community. So they start off with what they call the monarchical period, the time when Israel and Judah had kings reigning over them. And the time period for that is 745 to 586 BC. Now, 586 BC is the 11th year of Zedekiah. 
It's the date of the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians. So that was the end of the monarchy. But the start date, 745 BC, is in the reign of Jotham, who was Hezekiah's grandfather. And what this view is saying is that no book of the Old Testament existed in its current and finished form before the reign of Hezekiah's grandfather, Jotham. So this is what they think happened. In that monarchical period, the first half of Amos, the first part of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, and we'll see how they split up Isaiah as we proceed. First 39 chapters of Isaiah were written, Hosea, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, and Habakkuk. And they were written early on during that period. But then later on in the reign of Josiah, part of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, and the middle section of Deuteronomy were written. So when the scriptures say that Hilkiah the high priest found the book of the law of Moses in the, in the temple in the days of Josiah, that's simply not true according to this view. The book of the law of Moses, well, no, not all of it, but the middle part of Deuteronomy was actually written, they say, they claim, in the time of Josiah. So it wasn't an original document at all. It was something newly produced, it is alleged, to help Josiah's reform. Then we have the period of the exile, when Israel were in Babylon, 586 to 539 BC. It should actually be 586 to 536, because that's the decree of Cyrus, which allowed them to go back. But during that period of the exile, it is claimed the core of Obadiah. I mean, I beg the question, what is the core of a prophecy that's only 21 verses long? Uh, first four chapters of Deuteronomy and Deuteronomy 29 to 30. So Deuteronomy 31, which we've read, wasn't written yet. The rest of Joshua, Judges, Samuel and Kings, the early version of Jeremiah, whatever that was, Ezekiel, Second Isaiah, 40 to 55, and possibly early Psalms, 1 to 89. Then we have the time after the exile. Genesis to Numbers from various sources. Now, Brother Ron last night quoted Jonathan Pogson as saying that Genesis 1 to 11 were fables given in Babylon. None of the critics of the Bible who allege all this know of any of these various sources from which Genesis to Numbers are supposed to have been written. Deuteronomy was revised apparently with expansions to chapters 19 to 25, the addition of chapter 27 and chapter 31 to 34 to serve as a conclusion to the Torah. So chapter 31, which we've read, the conversations with which that chapter records with Moses speaking and God speaking to Moses, never happened in Moses' day. It's all the imagination of scribes once Israel had returned back to the land from the exile in Babylon. Third Isaiah, it is claimed, was written at this time, and later Jeremiah. Haggai, Zechariah 1 to 8, and, and, and then they tell us 100 years later, chapters 9 to 14. Malachi, Chronicles, probably 350-300 BC, which is the time of Alexander the Great and the origins of Ezra and Nehemiah. 
Then we've got the Hellenistic period, the time of the Greeks, Alexander the Great and his successors. Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Jonah, which they call a fictional work, despite the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ says that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, despite the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ said Jonah went and preached to the Ninevites and they repented. Apparently, it's a work of fiction. Jesus is not telling us the truth. And the final third of Psalms. There's been no mention in any of this of Psalm 90, the title of which is the Psalm of Moses, the man of God. And then finally, we've got the Maccabean period, 164 BC down to 4 BC, which of course is about the time of the Lord, birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that time, Daniel was written, very precisely dated by the critics, 163 BC. We'll see the reason for that later. And Esther. Why do they believe all this? Because the German higher critics who, who started all this off in the 19th century were influenced by Darwinism. They believe that man started off in a very primitive state and he gradually increased in his abilities and his understanding as evolution developed over the millennia. They absolutely did not believe that the Bible is a divine revelation, and they absolutely did not believe in predictive prophecy. So that when Isaiah 44 and 45 speak about Cyrus as God's Messiah, God's shepherd, that must have been written after the event because Isaiah couldn't possibly have known that a Persian king called Cyrus would come on the scene 150 years later and overthrow Babylon. So all books which speak of historical events must date after those events. Now, here's a quote from a book called Biblical Criticism, Historical, Literal and Textual, which argues against this modern view. And it says that one of the problems is, quote, the a priori notion. Now, if you don't know any Latin, what a priori is, is this. You're going to investigate some matter. And before you even start looking at the evidence and doing any research, you decide, first of all, what conclusion you're going to reach. And then you find only the evidence which supports that conclusion. So. The a priori notion that nothing in the Old Testament should be accepted as historical fact until it can be demonstrated as such by extra biblical evidence. So they'll accept the writings of Josephus, the Jewish historian, Tacitus, the Roman historian, but they will not accept Bible history unless you can corroborate it. And, says the writer here, this presupposition was combined with a complete ignorance of Near Eastern methods of scribal transmission, a calculated rejection of archaeological data, so anything archaeological, archaeological that didn't fit, they rejected, and the arbitrary selection of evidence. So these people were hugely biased before they even started, and they decided on their conclusion before they looked at the evidence. Now, we believe that the Bible is the word of God. And we would cite predictive prophecy and archaeology and the marvelous way that the books of the Bible fit together as evidence for that. So what we're going to do now is we're going to work our way through the Old Testament, starting with Genesis, 
and we're going to look at the biblical evidence for when these books were written. So can we turn, please, to the Epistle to the Galatians and chapter 3. We're going to look at some New Testament references first to the writing of Genesis, and then we're going to go back into the book of Genesis itself and have a look at the internal evidence. So Galatians chapter 3, the apostle is writing about Abraham and his faith. And in Galatians 3 verse 8, he says, and the scripture. Now, the Greek word there is the word graphe, which is translated scripture 51 times. The corresponding word verb grapho is translated 260, 206 times as to write or written. So this is all about writing and the scripture, the writing, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, in thee shall all nations be blessed. And your margin will take you back to Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, where that is written. And what this is telling us is that Abraham had Genesis 12 as a written scripture. And when he read it, he learned the gospel. And the gospel told him that through him, blessing would come upon the nations. So if you were to go back to Genesis and have a look at the record of the life of Abraham, you, you find that very soon afterward, he is bringing Gentiles, Amorites, into the bond of the covenant, Genesis 14, where it says that these Amorites were confederate with Abraham. And literally, that means they were possessors of the covenant with Abraham. So from his understanding, from his Bible, Abraham learned the gospel and he went out and preached it. Now turn to Romans chapter 4, where again the subject is Abraham, and the promise that God made to him that Sarah would have a son. Romans chapter 4 and verse 21. And being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now that's Genesis 15 verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. Verse 23. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it, righteousness, shall be imputed if we believe, if we have faith on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. So the clear implication is that Genesis 15 was written for Abraham's sake. But was it written in his lifetime? Come to James chapter 2. Because there we have the answer. James chapter 2. And, and just look first of all at verse 8. James chapter 2 verse 8. If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture... Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. And the margin will take you back to Leviticus 19, where that is written. Now, we know what that means. There is a writing which says, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And if you do that, you are fulfilling that scripture. You can't fulfill a scripture until it is written. So now come to verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? 
Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect, and the scripture, the writing, was fulfilled, which saith, Genesis 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. So Abraham had Genesis 15, verse 6, in his Bible, as a written scripture, before the time of Genesis 22, when he and Isaac journeyed to Mount Moriah. Now, all the way through the book of Genesis, there were prophets. Um, there's a selection. I'm not saying that those are all the prophets in Genesis, but there's nine of them. And the biblical evidence that they were prophets. God has not left himself without witness. And the lifetimes of those prophets span the whole of the 2,370 years of the book of Genesis apart from one gap of three years between the death of Noah and the birth of Abraham. So God never left himself without witness. There were prophets all the way through that Genesis period. So come back with me now to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 5, and let's have a look at the internal evidence in Genesis for contemporary writing by these prophets. You see, the Bible says that God created man very good. Man was not created in a primitive state, as the evolutionists believe. Man was created very good. And Adam, on the day of his creation, gave appropriate names to every creature that God brought to him. That tells us of a level of intelligence and understanding, which far exceeds that that the evolutionists propose. So Genesis 5 verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. It's the normal Hebrew word for book. So Nahum 1 verse 1, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite, same word. And even the critics accept that Nahum wrote Nahum. Adam was contemporary with all the events in Genesis chapter 4 and, of course, Genesis chapter 3 and part of Genesis chapter 2. So why should we not believe that he wrote those things? And interestingly, I mentioned the way that scriptures fit together. If you keep a finger in Genesis and just turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we find there a quotation. Matthew chapter 1, which we'll find in a minute. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. So in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, we have the book of the first Adam. And in Matthew chapter 1, we have the book of the last Adam. Turn now to Genesis and chapter 10. Genesis 10 is the list of all the nations, or the fathers of the nations, who descended from the sons of Noah. And Ham, one of Noah's sons, had a son called Canaan. So we read about the Canaanites. So Genesis chapter 10, verse 19. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as thou comest to Gera and to Gaza, as thou goest unto Sodom and Gomorrah, and Adma and Zeboim, even unto Lhasa. But after the events recorded in Genesis chapter 19, you could not go to Sodom and Gomorrah. They had been utterly destroyed by fire and brimstone from heaven. 
what that's telling us is that Genesis 10 was a contemporary document written at the time before the destruction of Sodom. Now, the critics allege that Genesis is a composite work written by different authors. I would agree with that. There are the prophets. They also allege that Genesis, these documents were brought together by an editor or editors. And I'd agree with that as well. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 50. And I think Genesis chapter 50 tells us who the editor was. So Genesis chapter 50 is the record of Joseph and the family taking the body of Jacob to bury it in the cave of Machpelah. And we read at verse 10 of Genesis chapter 50. And they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond Jordan. And there they mourned with a great and very sore lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning in the floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning to the Egyptians. Therefore, the name of it was called Abel Mitzraim, which is beyond Jordan. So the person who wrote that was on the east side of Jordan because the Canaanites only lived on the west. And that's exactly where Moses was in Deuteronomy 31, which we have read, when he completed the book of the law and handed it over to the priests and the Levites. So he took all these contemporary documents which had been written by these prophets at the time and he brought them together. And by the spirit, he added certain geographical details. There's several of them in Genesis 14. And so he completed the Torah and gave it to the priests and the Levites. Just one more. Come to Exodus now and chapter 16. Exodus 16 records the giving of the manna. And in verse 33, we read that Moses said unto Aaron, take a pot and put an omer full of manna therein and lay it up before Yahweh to be kept for your generations. As Yahweh commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. Now, the word testimony is, is used of the tables of stone, which God gave to Moses. But of course, they hadn't got to Sinai at this stage. They had no tables of stone when the manna was given. The word testimony is used when King Joash was crowned at seven years old and they put the testimony in his hand. It's the law that he was to write out and to keep the scriptures. So Exodus 16 verse 17 is telling us that they already had scriptures and they were at the very heart of their encampment. And if you wanted to put something in a really special place before Yahweh, you put it by the Bible. That's the testimony of the scriptures concerning the writing of Genesis. So who are we going to believe? Are we going to believe the text of the Old Testament and the New Testament, which say that Genesis was the production of contemporary prophets? Or are we going to believe the word of men, which tell us that it wasn't written until after the exile from Babylon? So let's have a look now at the writing of Moses, which is attributed to the time of the exile and after the exile. 
Years ago, the critics used to say Moses could not have written the Torah because Moses couldn't write. Writing wasn't known in his day. Well, of course, they can't say that anymore because they now know, it is now known that writing goes back to before the time of Abraham and commerce was supported with bills of lading and invoices written in, on, on tablets before the time of Abraham. So they can't say anymore, Moses couldn't write. Then they said, well, Moses couldn't have written the Torah because the, the ideas in it were too advanced for primitive man at, at that stage of his development. But then, of course, they discovered the law of Hammurabi, which is just as complex and detailed as the law of Moses, but is very clearly the production of the mind of man, not the mind of God. You see, these critics will say anything but accept that Moses wrote the Torah. Brother Ron Carey last night quoted John O'Burke saying, Moses didn't write Genesis. But what does the Bible say? Well, again, I don't claim this is a complete list, but this is as far as I've got. There are 24 quotations in the Old Testament and nine in the New Testament to Moses' writing. Quite happy to make copies of the PowerPoint available afterwards to anyone who wants that list to save you writing it all down. We're not going to look at all of them, but we will look at the ones I've highlighted. So hopefully we're still in Exodus 16. So turn the page to Exodus 17 and verse 14. Joshua, by the power of God, has just won the battle against the Amalekites. Verse 14 of Exodus 17, And Yahweh said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. So Moses clearly had to write it at the time. Deuteronomy 31, which we've read, verse 9, And Moses wrote this law, and delivered it unto the priests, the sons of Levi, which bear the ark of the covenant of Yahweh, and to all the elders of Israel. And he commanded that every seven years the law be read. Verse 22, Moses therefore wrote this song the same day and taught it the children of Israel. Verse 24, and it came to pass when Moses had made an end of writing the words of this law in a book until they were finished, that he gave it to the Levites. Let's just move on now to the second book of Chronicles and chapter 25. Here we're in the reign of King Amaziah. Amaziah lived before Jotham. So according to the critics, no book of scripture was complete at this time. So 2 Chronicles 25. Second Chronicles 25 and verse 3. Amaziah's father, Joash, had been assassinated. So we read in verse 3 of Second Chronicles 25. Now it came to pass when the kingdom was established to him that he slew his servants that had killed the king his father. But he slew not their children, but did as it is written in the law in the book of Moses where Yahweh commanded, saying, The fathers shall not die for the children, neither shall the children die for the fathers, but every man shall die for his own sin. The book of Moses, written. 
Nehemiah and chapter 8. So they've returned from exile now, they've built the wall, and in Nehemiah 8, only a few days after they've completed the wall, we read there, Nehemiah 8 verse 1, and all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate, and they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which Yahweh had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, and he read therein. It's the book of the law of Moses. And just one more from the New Testament, John chapter 5. I love this one because it is so powerful. John chapter 5, Jesus is in conversation with the Jewish rulers. And verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? So the internal Bible evidence is that Moses wrote the law. If Moses didn't write the law, but it was written in the times when the critics suggest that it was written, then the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is a liar. Because he said that Moses not only wrote the law, but that Moses wrote predictive prophecy about him. And Peter quotes that in Acts chapter 3. He quotes Deuteronomy 18, where Moses wrote of Christ. And the Apostle Paul and other New Testament writers quote Moses. So who are we going to believe? The Lord Jesus Christ, Paul, and all the other writers of scripture, that they are telling the truth? Or are we going to believe the word of men and imply that Jesus and Paul and the other writers of scripture are not telling the truth? They're telling us lies. Okay, we move on now to the historical books from Joshua to Chronicles. And if we go back to Joshua chapter 1, we will find how the scripture says that things proceeded. So Joshua chapter 1, God is speaking to Joshua. Verse 7. Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then shalt thou make thy way prosperous, then shalt thou have good success. So Joshua had the book of the law. Now turn to Joshua 24. The end of Joshua's life when he calls all Israel together and exhorts them. Joshua 24, verse 25. And Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and set them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. So Joshua continued the writing which Moses had begun. And if you turn on to the first book of Samuel and chapter 10, we read there of the time when Israel desired a king. 
and God gave them Saul. First Samuel chapter 10, verse 25, and I'm going to read the revised version margin. Then Samuel told the people the manner of the kingdom and wrote it in the book and laid it up before Yahweh. So Joshua continued the writing. Samuel continued the writing. I'm going to take you now through a sequence of passages in the books of Chronicles. So turn to 1 Chronicles 29, last chapter of Chronicles. And the chronicler, and we'll come to who he was in a minute, or they were, the chronicler tells us about other writings. So 1 Chronicles 29 Verse 29, now the acts of David the king first and last, behold, they are written in the book of Samuel the seer, and in the book of Nathan the prophet, and in the book of Gad the seer. And those three, of course, were contemporary with David. Now move on to the second book of Chronicles and chapter 9. And here we come to the end of the reign of Solomon. Second Chronicles 9, verse 29. Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon, first and last, are they not written in the book of Nathan the prophet and in the prophecy of Ahijah the Shilonite and in the visions of Iddo the seer against Jeroboam the son of Nebat? Now the next king, chapter 12 and verse 15. Second Chronicles 12, verse 15. Now the acts of Rehoboam, first and last, are they not written in the book of Shemiah the prophet and Ido the seer concerning genealogies? So we're building up a whole series of prophets who lived at the time of these kings and wrote down the doings of the kings. Now come to chapter 16 and verse 11. Second Chronicles 16, verse 11. And behold, the acts of Asa first and last, lo, they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. So what's happening now is that the writings of these various prophets concerning the kings are being collected together into one continuous record, which is called the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And chapter 20 tells us how this happened. Second Chronicles 20 and verse 34. And I'm going to read the authorized version margin. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat, first and last, behold, they are written in the book of Jehu, the son of Hanani, which was caused to ascend into the book of the kings of Israel. So Jehu wrote the history of Jehoshaphat and someone who had the authority of the spirit said, this is a genuine prophecy. This is a revelation from God. This is God's word. We will add it to the book of the Kings. Now come to chapter 32, where we're at the time of the end of the reign of Hezekiah. And here we have another helpful piece of information. Second Chronicles 32 and verse 32. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his goodness, behold, they are written in the vision of Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. There's no and. They didn't have 
chapters and verses in those days. They couldn't say, go to Second Chronicles 32, 32. What they did have was names for parts of scripture. And the part of the record of the book of the Kings, which referred to Hezekiah, was called the vision of Isaiah, because Isaiah wrote it. And later on, Jeremiah wrote some of the history of the latter kings of Judah from Josiah onwards. So when we put all this together, we find, for example, in 2 Kings 18, 19 and 20, there are sections there which are almost word for word identical with passages from the historical section in Isaiah 36 to 39. Similarly with Jeremiah, 2 Kings 24 and 25 contain sections which are the same as Jeremiah 52 verses 1 to 27 and 31 to 34. And when we talk, take an overall view of the books of Samuel Kings on the one hand and Chronicles on the other, we find that in Samuel and Kings, there are 95 references to prophets, only 29 in Chronicles. And most of those are the sort of passages that we've looked at where the prophets, Nathan uh, and Gad and so forth, wrote histories of the kings. But by contrast, there are only three references to Levites in Samuel and Kings in the four books, a hundred references to Levites in Chronicles. So now come to the very end of Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 36 and verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of Yahweh spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, and that's identical to the opening verse of Ezra. So clearly Ezra wrote the end of Chronicles. Ezra was a priest, and that explains why there are so many references in Chronicles to Jerusalem and to the temple and to the priesthood and to the Levites. And those kings who looked after the temple, kings like Asa and Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah and Josiah, they are the ones who are written large in the book of Chronicles. There's no mention there of the sin of David because he couldn't go to the priests and seek atonement for murder and adultery. And there is absolutely no good reason, therefore, to suggest that these records were written long after the events. They are the work of contemporary prophets. Now, what about the Psalms? We, we saw that the other view suggests that the Psalms were written from the monarchical period to the Hellenistic period. In other words, David didn't write any Psalms, according to the critics. But what does the New Testament say? Well, the New Testament endorses those seven Psalms as being written by David, actually mentions his name alongside the quotation from the Psalm. And the five against which I've put the, the letters PP all contain predictive prophecy, most of them about the Lord Jesus Christ. So the New Testament is telling us that David did write Psalms. 
and the claim that the Psalms were not written or collected until 200-ish BC is totally refuted by the Lord Jesus Christ and by his apostles. So again, we have to ask ourselves the question, are we going to believe what Jesus and the apostles said about the Psalms? Or are we going to believe the scholar's view? Now we come to Isaiah. The critics, as we've seen, split Isaiah up into three because they did not believe in predictive prophecy. So anything that Isaiah said about the future must actually be history written after the event. Again, what does the New Testament say? Well, in the New Testament, Isaiah is called Isaiah. That's the Greek form of his name. And there are, as far as I can discover, 22 quotations in the New Testament that mention Isaiah and quote from the prophecy of Isaiah. So, for example, Matthew 13 quotes Isaiah 6, Romans 15 quotes Isaiah 11, Matthew 15 quotes Isaiah 29. All those are part of what the critics call first Isaiah. Matthew 3 quotes Isaiah 40, John 12 quotes Isaiah 53. They're part of what the critics call second Isaiah. And Jesus in Luke 4 quotes from Isaiah 61, and Romans 10 quotes Isaiah 65, which the critics say are third Isaiah. But the New Testament says all of those are Isaiah. So who's right? The New Testament? The Dead Sea Scrolls? Where the most complete scroll of all the books of the Old Testament is the scroll of Isaiah with no gaps, no pause after chapter 39. Here's another quote from the book on the historical and literary criticism of the Bible. The critics say, Isaiah could not possibly have projected the prolonged futuristic standpoint that parts of the prophecy appear to necessitate. That's what they say. And the writer of this book responds, it was never thought necessary to prove these assertions, but merely to maintain them. There's no evidence whatsoever that Isaiah was written during three different periods of historical time by three different people. So again, we have to ask ourselves the question, who is right? New Testament, Dead Sea Scrolls, or the critics? So we come to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is full of predictive prophecy. Daniel 2 is a huge problem to the higher critics because Daniel 2 foretells, as we all know, a succession of empires, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. How possibly could Daniel, living in 600-ish BC, foretell that the kingdom of Babylon would be overthrown by the Medo-Persians, who in turn would be defeated by the Greeks, and then the Romans would take over? So they assign to Daniel a date of 163 BC in the Maccabean period when Babylon, Medo-Persia had gone, Greece was ruling and Rome was lo looming on the horizon. So reasonable speculation that Rome might be the fourth empire. The book, they say, was not written by Daniel in Babylon. It was written 400 years later. And if you pick up this volume, New Atlas of the Bible by Collins, you'll find this is what it says about the book of Daniel. 
In 163 BC, when the Jews under the Maccabees were fighting the Greeks, a Jew in Jerusalem got hold of a very old piece of writing material, and he wrote on it the entirety of the book of Daniel. The critics can't explain why he wrote it in two languages, partly in Babylonian and partly in Hebrew, but never mind, he wrote the book of Daniel. Once the ink was thoroughly dry, he rushed out into the streets of Jerusalem, waving it and saying, look at this, I found this ancient prophecy written by Daniel in Babylon 400 years ago, which says that we're going to beat, beat the Greeks. So carry on the fight. We're going to win. God's on our side. He pretended that he'd found a genuine prophetic book and all the Jews believed him. And that's how it's been from that day. But now turn to, Mount, to the Gospel record of Mark and chapter 13. Here we have the Olivet prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ foretold a whole sequence of events which were going to happen leading up to the fall of Jerusalem. And in Mark chapter 13 and verse 14, we read, But when ye shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let him that readeth understand. Then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains. When you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, that's the authorised version, and the New King James and Young's Literal. But if you've got on your lap an ESV, or an NIV, or an NET Bible, you won't find those words in it. Spoken of by Daniel the prophet is omitted. Because there were people in the second century, like Marcion the heretic, who also did not believe in predictive prophecy. And Marcion said, I'm going to take a knife to the Bible. And he cut out the bits he didn't like. And then modern man discovered some of these mutilated manuscripts and came up with the theory that the shortest text must be the most correct because scribes always added things. And that became part of the Westcott and Hawke text. And Daniel, the reference to Daniel in Mark 13 was omitted. But in every known copy of Matthew chapter 24 in the Greek, spoken of by Daniel the prophet is there. Jesus did say those words. Here's another modernist view, Belshazzar. Cyrus the Great made his entrance into Babylon. Nabonidus, Belshazzar's father, was captured and his life spared. But nothing is known of the fate of Belshazzar. This is on the basis that you don't accept anything written in the Bible unless you can corroborate it from elsewhere. According to the book of Daniel, quote, in which historical accuracy is not an essential element, Belshazzar sees a hand writing on the wall, which Daniel interprets as foretelling the fall of Babylon. The consensus among scholars is that Daniel never existed. Who are we going to believe? The minority text of Westcott and Hort, which is the basis of modern translations of the New Testament? The current worldview? Or are we going to believe Jesus? Here's another quote from the book on the criticism of the Bible. Because they discovered in the Dead Sea Caves, the scroll of the prophet Daniel. Whatever may be thought about the place of prediction in prophecy, the manuscript evidence from Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, 
absolutely precludes the date of composition in the Maccabean period, 163 BC, but does indicate one in the Neo-Babylonian area. In other words, the Hebrew of the Dead Sea Scroll of Daniel is telling the scholars this was written in Babylon in the time of the Babylonian Empire, not in the time of the Maccabees. So far, I found just over 120 quotations in the New Testament from the book of Genesis. And I want to show you how those quotations are distributed. So more than 120 quotations, that's an average of two and a half quotations per chapter of Genesis. If we take the first three chapters of Genesis, there are 42 quotations. That's an average of 14 quotations per chapter. 34 quotations from Genesis 4 to 11, that's 4.2 quotations per chapter. 38 from Genesis 12 to 13, that's 1.5. And 10 quotations are from Genesis 39 to 50. That's less than one quotation per chapter. The focus of the New Testament is on the early chapters of Genesis. Brother Ron quoted Jonathan Pogson last night, saying that Genesis 1 to 11 are allegories and parables. There are 76 New Testament quotations from Genesis 1 to 11. And the New Testament treats Genesis 1 to 11 as a factual record. Cain slew Abel. The serpent beguiled Eve. <clears throat> All flesh was destroyed by the flood. The New Testament takes Genesis as facts. So should we. So there's the 39 books of the Old Testament. How many of them are quoted in the New? The answer, as far as I can determine, is all but the book of Esther. How many of those books are quoted by Jesus? And the result that I've got so far is 26 of them. If we accept the views of modern man on the writing of the Old Testament, we have to reject all of this biblical evidence. We have to say that Jesus and Paul got it wrong. They made mistakes. But isn't it the case, actually, that it's modern man who has got it wrong? We all, brothers and sisters, young people, friends, have to make choices. Who do we believe? God or men?